Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. So it's settled. We will spend two weeks in New York this summer. Yay! I'm so excited to be finally taking you to the Big Apple. I'm excited too, albeit a little nervous as well. I mean, I've never been on a plane. Never been to a big city as New York, let alone that far away from home. Don't worry, you're going to love it. Flying is so much fun, and taking the red eye is amazing. We'll watch the Tonys, rush to the airport and get on our plane, and when you wake up, the sun will be rising and you'll be in a whole new city, surrounded by enormous skyscrapers and iconic views. That does sound exhilarating. It just also sounds so nerve-wracking, too, you know? I promise it's going to be fun. Plus, if we're going to move there someday, we have to take the first step and actually have you be in the city, right? I suppose. Although, I don't know if I could give up these mountains. I don't know if I could live anywhere that doesn't have mountains. Think of it this way. You're trading mountains for skyscrapers. Both are incredibly tall and both are massive. And both touch the sky. (laughs) It's like a wise person in a musical once said, to be free, one must give up a part of oneself. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the cult classic show, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We've got a sweet tooth for licorice drops and jelly rolls. And if you're craving sugar as much as we are, you've come to the right place. Because today we are talking about the glam rock show, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. This jarring and entertaining show roared onto Broadway, bringing with it a powerful story, witty retorts, and powerful stars that whipped Broadway audiences into a frenzy. But before we unbox our wigs, we must first go back to the beginning to lay the groundwork. The character of Hedwig was originally a supporting character in the piece. She was loosely inspired by a German female babysitter prostitute that worked for Mitchell's family when he was a teenager in Junction City, Kansas. The character of Tommy, originally conceived as the main character, was based on Mitchell himself. Both were gay, the child of an army general, deeply Roman Catholic, and fascinated with mythology. Hedwig became the story's protagonist when Trask encouraged Mitchell to showcase their earliest material in 1994 at NYC's drag punk club Squeezebox, where Trask headed the house band and Mitchell's boyfriend, Jack Steve, played bass. 
They agreed the piece should be developed through band gigs in clubs rather than in a theater setting in order to preserve a rock energy. Mitchell was deeply influenced by Squeezebox's roster of drag performers who performed rock covers. Mitchell's second gig was as fill-in host at Squeezebox on a bill featuring singer Deborah Harry of Blondie. It was for this occasion that Mike Potter first designed Hedwig's trademark wig, which was initially constructed from toilet paper rolls wrapped with synthetic blonde hair. Mitchell, Trask, and the band Cheater continued to workshop material at venues such as Fez Nightclub and West Beth Theater Center for four years before premiering the completed musical Off-Broadway in 1998. Mitchell, who himself came out as non-binary in 2022, has explained that Hedwig is not a trans woman, but a genderqueer character. She is more than a woman or a man, he said. She's a gender of one, and that is accidentally so beautiful. He also stated that while Hedwig is meant to be a queer voice, she is not meant to be specifically transgender. Quote, The sex change operation is not a choice. Hedwig doesn't speak for any trans community because she was, well, mutilated. Hedwig and the Angry Inch premiered off-Broadway at the Jane Street Theater on February 14, 1998 and closed on April 9, 2000 after 857 performances. Direction was by Peter Askin and the musical staging by Jerry Mitchell with Hedwig initially played by John Cameron Mitchell and Yitzhak played by Miriam Shore. The theater was located in the ballroom of the Hotel Riverview, which once housed the surviving crew of the Titanic, a fact which figured in the original production. Actors who played Hedwig in this off-Broadway production included Michael Severus, Donovan Leach, Ali Shetty, Kevin Calhoun, Asa Summers, and Matt McGrath. This production won the Obie Award 1998 Special Citations for Stephen Trask uh, and the cast and the Outer Critics Circle Award for Best Off-Broadway Musical. Hedwig and the Angry Inch opened in the West End at the Playhouse Theater on September 19, 2000 and closed on November 4, 2000 with Michael Severus. Other productions would be mounted around the world, including Germany, Japan, Israel, Mexico, Italy, Canada, the Netherlands, South Korea, and two U.S. national tours. This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. Book, John Cameron Mitchell. Music, lyrics, and orchestrations, Stephen Trask. Director, Michael Mayer. Musical staging, Spencer Liff. Scenic design, by Julian Crouch, costume design by Arian Phillips, lighting design Kevin Adams, sound design by Timothy O'Hare, projection design Benjamin Piercy and 59 Productions, and wigs and makeup design by Mike Potter. The show arrived at the Belasco Theater on April 22nd of 2014, where it would rock audiences for 507 performances until its closing on September 13, 2015. 
This version of the musical updates the story to modern day and has Hedwig performing on the abandoned set of the fictional Hurt Locker, the musical, which closed the prior evening midway through its first performance. Hedwig explains that because it closed so quickly, she was able to convince one of the producers to allow her to use what would have been an otherwise empty and unused stage. Faux playbills for the musical are littered throughout the theater and discuss various elements of the musical, which Hedwig occasionally mentions offhand throughout the musical. Director Michael Mayer stated that they came up with the idea for Hurt Locker, the musical, as a way to explain Hedwig's presence in a Broadway theater. It was also used as a way to update the script to modern day, as well as explain how Hedwig would be able to use such stage settings. Various newspapers have commented favorably on the faux playbills, both as an element of the musical and as a piece separate from the musical itself. The musical explores queer identity and challenges the notion of rock culture as being separate from live theater. It adds to the increasing number of mainstream films and media that questions dichotomous views on sex and gender. Hedwig and the Angry Inch also provides a space for openly queer performers in this alternative theater movement and punk subculture that is often labeled as queercore. Instead of a conventional transgender narrative that looks at an individual's account of gender dysphoria, Hedwig and the Angry Inch focuses on the character's journey of finding love by looking within. Academics have also recognized the link between Hedwig's search for her other half and Plato's origin of love, one of Hedwig's numbers. In league with the Western emphasis on individualism, Hedwig and the Angry Inch questions what it means to be divided in an individualist society. As Mitchell, director of the film adaptation, acknowledges through recurring motifs of, quote, the divided self, the divided city of Berlin, the uh, divided gender, the theme of dualism pervades the entire musical. Yet Hedwig ultimately disavows this notion of external completion, instead bolstering a pro-Western ideology of individual autonomy that contributes to a global naturalization of Western philosophy. It is also worth noting that this show has a huge fan base and almost cult-like following. Fans of the play and film refer to themselves as headheads. In Korea and Japan, a number of teen idols and respected actors have played the role and inspired a large number of young female headheads. Back to the 2014 Broadway production. The show would be nominated for eight Tony Awards and would snatch four that evening. Best Lighting Design of a Musical for Kevin Adams. Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Lena Hall, who played Yitzhak. Best Actor in a Musical for Neil Patrick Harris, who played Hedwig. And Best Musical Revival. So let's tune into our Midnight Radio. The concept of the stage production is that the audience is watching gender queer rock singer Hedwig Robinson's musical act 
as she follows rock star Tommy Gnosis's much more successful tour around the country. Occasionally, Hedwig opens the door on stage to listen to Gnosis' concert, which is playing in an adjoining venue. Gnosis is recovering from an incident that nearly ruined his career, having crashed his car into a school bus wall high and receiving oral sex from none other than Hedwig. Capitalizing on her notoriety from the incident, Hedwig determines to tell the audience her story. She is aided and hindered by her assistant, backup singer, and husband, Yitzhak. A Jewish drag queen from Zagreb, Yitzhak has an unhealthy, codependent relationship with Hedwig. Hedwig verbally abuses him throughout the evening, and it becomes clear that she is threatened by his natural talent, which eclipses her own. She describes how she agreed to marry him only after extracting a promise from him to never perform as a woman again, and he bitterly resents her treatment of him. To further the musical's theme of blurred gender lines, Yitzhak is often played by a woman actor. Hedwig tells her life story, which began when she was Hansel Schmidt, a slip of a girly boy growing up in East Berlin. Raised by an emotionally distant single mother after her father, an American soldier, abandoned the family, Hansel takes solace in her love of Western rock music. She becomes fascinated with a story called The Origin of Love, based on Aristophanes' speech in Plato's Symposium. It explains that three sexes of human beings once existed, children of the sun, man and man attached, children of the earth, woman and woman attached, and children of the moon, man and woman attached. Each were once round, two-headed, four-armed, and four-legged beings. Angry gods split these early humans in two, leaving the separated people with a lifelong yearning for their other half. Hansel is determined to search for her other half, but is convinced she will have to travel to the West to do so. This becomes possible when, in her 20s, she meets Luther Robinson, an American soldier who convinces her to begin dressing in drag. Luther falls in love with Hansel, and the two decide to marry. This plan will allow Hansel to leave communist East Germany for capitalist West. Hansel's mother, Hedwig, gives Hansel her name and passport and finds a doctor to perform a genital reassignment surgery. However, the operation is botched, and Hansel's surgically constructed vagina heals closed, leaving Hedwig with a dysfunctional one-inch mound of flesh between her legs with a scar running down it like a sideways grimace on an eyeless face. Hedwig goes to live in Junction City, Kansas, as Luther's wife. On their first wedding anniversary, Luther leaves Hedwig for a man. That same day, it is announced that the Berlin Wall has fallen and Germany will reunite, meaning Hedwig's sacrifice was for nothing. Hedwig recovers from the separation by creating a more glamorous feminine identity for herself and forming a rock band she calls the Angry Inch. Hedwig befriends the brother of a child she babysits, shy and misunderstood Christian teenager Tommy Speck, who is fascinated by a song she writes with him in mind. They collaborate on songs and begin a relationship Their songs are a success, and Hedwig gives him the stage name Tommy Gnosis. Hedwig believes that Tommy is her soulmate, 
and that she cannot be whole without him. But he is disgusted when he discovers that she is not biologically female and abandons her. He goes on to become a wildly successful rock star with the songs Hedwig wrote alone and with him. The internationally ignored Hedwig and her band The Angry Inch are forced to support themselves by playing coffee bars and dives. Hedwig grows more erratic and unstable as the evening progresses until she finally breaks down, stripping off her wig, dress, and makeup, forcing Yitzhak to step forward and sing. At the height of her breakdown, she seems to transform into Tommy Gnosis, who both begs for and offers forgiveness in a reprise of the song she wrote for him. Hedwig, out of costume, finds acceptance within herself, giving her wig to Yitzhak. At peace, Hedwig departs the stage as Yitzhak takes over her final song, dressed fabulously in drag. The end. discuss the parts we liked i'm not gonna say the parts we need to critique because let's just be real i mean i absolutely love this show i mean i think that this show is amazing i think that its cult following is entirely justified and i just love the performative gender concepts that the show presents. It was raucous, offensive, hilarious, and thought-provoking, and I loved every bit of it. Like, I knew nothing going into it except, you know, Neil Patrick Harris, Lena Hall. Um, and again, this is at the time when I was just like, buy tickets to every Broadway musical. Yay! Um, and I was like, I don't know what we're going to get into on this. And then when we went, we saw it perform at the Tonys, and I was like... Okay, interesting. And 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 look, in my naivete, I was like, cool, it's drag queens. I was very ignorant then. Very ignorant. And you were the one that really helped explain a lot of things in this show. That I went, oh my gosh, I did, oh, okay, so that's what that's, oh, okay. And this show opened my eyes to a lot of stuff, but I was like, none of this I was expecting. Well, and I had um, watched the film in my queer theater class, and we discussed about the work and kind of what it what it means. And so I was really excited to see this because I knew what it was going into it. And the film is also great, starring John Cameron Mitchell mm-hmm. and Andrea Martin. <laughs> we love Andrea Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I, but but you having that, I wish more than anything. Um, we had talked before the show because, like I said, I knew nothing going into this. Well, I don't know. I knew nothing going into this. And I was really overwhelmed, surprised, in the best way. The unconventional storytelling was absolutely perfect. It wasn't, like, given that season of everything that played, like this, I was like, wait, what are you doing? How are you telling this story? Why are you spitting at the audience? Like, what? Well, and I loved how perfect this show is and how well this story is done and i completely forgot that there wasn't an intermission or anything this is one of the first times i saw a musical that was 
one like act. One act, yeah. And so to see that that storytelling and a full... Um, a full art can be done. In, well, and uh, a full songbook can be done. In 90 minutes or so, yeah. Um, by the way, I just realized I, I remembered and I mentioned about spitting at the audience. Do you remember when that was cool? When you could do that? <laughs> ah, the pre-COVID days. Um, all the elements of the show, all the elements were firing on full cylinders. And watching it all come together was incredible. This was a show that you couldn't hold back on any one thing. Otherwise, it, it would be a major flop. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and also the venue, having the show at the Belasco just really made Hedwig feel very out of place because the Belasco is very ornate and has like the the Tiffany windows and all the stained glass. It's and also so- the farthest Broadway house, like off, like furthest away on Broadway, with the exception of Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. But like I was saying, there's you know all this elegant and regal decor, and then there's Hedwig. Yeah, and it just added to that dichotomy of where Hedwig doesn't quite fit in, and I loved that. Well, I love that they didn't hide any of that as well when they were making fun of it. You know, they they really acknowledge it where they're like, "Hi, look at us! We finally made it on Broadway. We're on the, I mean, we're barely on it. We're on the farthest theater on Broadway, but here we are." And then they also acknowledge, you know, David Belasco's ghost because that's so the Belasco Theater was built and everything by David Belasco. And he actually had an apartment on top of the theater. In fact, listen, y'all want to know more about this? Come on down to New York and take our tour offered by Sage Whisper. I got you. I got the history of this, but I digress. The fact that they were putting these little Easter eggs in there, I was like, this is fantastic. Because you don't get that anywhere else. When it would go on tour or when it was in the West End, they couldn't they couldn't make those references. Not to mention when you listen to um, the album. I don't know if it's on there. i got to double check. But um, in the opening number, Terry Me Down, uh, Hedwig would go, Hello, New York! And, and she'd be referencing the uh, orchestra. And then she'd go, Hello, New Jersey! And she'd be re- waving all of us up above, you know? And I was like, this is, this is just smart. These little things you know, made it, it, it just made it that much more, they weren't taking themselves so seriously in the best <clears> way. <throat> right. Well, and I think the easiest way we can get the uh, full understanding for our listeners is to dive into our boxes. Okay. Um, little boxes, little boxes. I'm sorry, I'm working on this song. I, I will get back to the drawing board and I'll figure it out. But let's start with the set. Two words. Hurt Locker. There you go. <laughs> the minute, like, the further we got in. Okay, truly, we mentioned this in the um, opening. In your playbill was the playbill for Hurt Locker, which was already, like, what? Like you were thrown off by it. Again, not knowing what the show was about. I was confused by Hurt Locker, the musical, as my playbill. But then they really did have scattered about the theater on the floor Hurt Locker, the musical playbills. Mm-hmm. Um, which 
I'm not a movie guy, so I didn't know what the crap the Hurt Locker was. Now, in hindsight, and then doing some research, I was like, oh my gosh, that set made so much more sense, <laughs> you know? Because, I mean, it made sense to me not knowing about the Hurt Locker. It, I thought it was just like a war zone, like Berlin, the Berlin Wall. That's what I thought it was, or just mm-hmm. some rocker set, you know? I was like, yeah, I get this. But now that I know that it was supposed to be from the Hurt Locker, I was like, or that. Yeah, that works too. <laughs> You know. Right. Well, and it just really goes to show how Hedwig is more of a, like a hermit crab, just going into places and really just fulfilling the role and fulfilling the space that she's in. Um, And I just, I loved it. I, I mean, the set was way more than you would ever do for a punk rock set. Yes. But like... What I love is it's just so punk rock that they're like, eh, we're just going to use it and make it work. It's just so punk rock. And I I loved it. I loved the car and its functionality. Yes. Because obviously they had to build the set for the show. That's where like a lot of the quick changes happen, especially the glamorous <laughs> wings and stuff. Um, well, and the fact that like Hedwig could go into that car and there was a costume change happening from the you know clavicle down... And Hedwig's just standing there still and performing. singing and everything. And then she steps out and it's like, wow. Yeah. Um, I love that um, it was like one big playpen that everyone could climb over and jump over. Um, I mean, Hedwig climbs up the side at one point. And I mean, climbs up the side. Mm-hmm. Um, I was amazed that they didn't have to have her tethered to anything because mm-hmm. of how she was climbing which was amazing to me but really just goes into that she's so punk rock you know i think that it was more let's give the space and really allow you know neil patrick harris to explore what hedwig would have done because in my mind hedwig is the definition of punk rock I want to add on something real quick that's also clever that we didn't mention that we kind of touched on before we got into the boxes, but you you brought in more here about like just the hermit crab thing. Mm-hmm. So the Belasco Theater is on Forty Fourth Street. Mm-hmm. Literally one block over on the other side of the on Forty Fifth is Town Hall where they do a lot of big concerts on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So you know how. Hedwig thing arranged that's following Tommy Gnosis. I mean, you couldn't get more brilliant where it's like Tommy Gnosis could totally be performing at Town Hall and Hedwig is just like, well, we're here at the Belasco Theater. Like, now to me, I will say like the Belasco is the better venue because it's a Broadway theater, you know, but I'm just, I was just thinking about that when you just said they just occupy whatever they can get into and I was like, oh, rats, you just got this Broadway theater. Shucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, but it it works so well, and the the irreverence in which they treated the space, too. Yeah. You know, to wander around, to step on the seats, to to just be like, I mean, to to pay reverence, you know, a little bit because oh, David Belasco's up there, da 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 da. So if anybody feels a little touch, it's just him. You know, it's the theater, but also just to be like, we're gonna trash this place ultimately, like you said, punk rock, and they. They did in the best way with that set. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is kind of cool. 
Yeah, well, and speaking of really cool... We have to go talk about the costumes. <clears throat> we have to talk about the costumes. <clears throat> Where is the milk carton? Here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing. Hedwig is an icon. Yes. The look of Hedwig is the definition of iconic. Yes. There are, there are looks <clears throat> that you see that you immediately go, oh, this is this. Oh, this is this. Cher has that uh, Oscar look. When she won for Moonstruck. Mm-hmm. And that is an iconic look. Like you could see that silhouette and you go, oh, I know who that is. That's Cher. Right. And Hedwig has As her that. own. Exactly. Um, and so to bring that to life on the stage, to be able to play that up and to give us larger than life gender performance. Yeah. Is just beautiful and stunning. I mean, I could, I could spend, I could write a thesis on the wigs. From that show. Um, yes. One of my favorite moments is um, Hedwig does a quick change in the car and comes out in a what looks to be like a Tina Turner dress, but it's made completely out of hair. Yes, the hair thing. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh. And it's just, I mean, listen, as a as a union member, all I can think of is, is that a costume or is that hair? Is that the wig in the box number, I think? I believe it is. And she and she comes out and goes, okay, now it's my favorite part of the song where you get to sing the words that I wrote. Mm-hmm. But so it just is iconic and beautiful. And something that they did for this show is they used magnets instead of pins to hold the hair on to Hedwig so that Hedwig could do wig changes in the middle of their performance. And it was just beautiful and brilliant. And their availability to just have that was just brilliant. So I have a question. Yes. You mentioned that they use magnets. Is this... A new thing now at this point in 2014 where magnets are being used regularly yes no so magnets have been used previously quite often no magnets are only used when absolutely necessary because you'd think magnets would make it easier but it in fact does not make it easier because magnets have to be affixed to the wig and the nature of magnets is to attract itself and if you get hairs caught in that or if you get um skin caught in between it it can be very pinchy you have to make sure that they're the right degree of um magnetized you also they're heavy they're super heavy especially the ones that will actually hold the hair in place to be able to do the movements that you need to do so magnets while they sound brilliant and like a better option than pinning it's actually not it's so so they don't really use they hadn't they they haven't been using magnets prior to the show a lot unless absolutely necessary the reason why i ask is as we go forward there'll be some shows we bring up that we're clearly using magnets over pins and mm-hmm. so that's why i was like is this a new thing where it's just easier to go click clack no and it's really only when there's no other option because it's really not practical and it's not the safest. It's not the most ideal. Um, mm, good to know. And it's not as foolproof as it sounds like it would be. Wanna... Unless we could permanently attach them as implants into the actor's heads, but I feel like I that's think, an feel evasive like an actor, surgery. We're just going to say no. <clears throat> 
Sorry. I want to leave wigs for just one moment to wrap up costumes because there's one more thing on wigs I want to talk about. But I want to go back to to costumes just for a minute. Um, I loved Yitzhak's punk Elvis look. Mm-hmm. That that was just such a punk look where with the pompadour and and it was sparkly pompadour mm-hmm. and just the leather and everything. I was like, yes, that is that is glam rock. That mm-hmm. is glam rock. Uh, not glam rock. That's glam punk, which is different. Glam rock is more like I, I would call it glam rock because of the gender bent. But just because it's a feminine version of a male does not mean that it is glam. Just because it's female does not mean it's glam. So glam rock more refers to the later 80s iteration of hair bands. Mm -hmm. That's glam rock. Punk is more about um, setting aside um, societal norms. Mm -hmm. And glam equals glitter. So then in that case, would you call all the like the denim outfit, particularly Hedwig's opening outfit, glam rock or punk? Punk. Because there's a lot of glitter involved with that first it, opening it, number. It would be glam punk because it's unconventional. Okay. And that first look looked amazing. Yeah. Punk is basically a middle finger to society's expectations. Whereas glam rock was more about feeding into the machine of the rock and roll industry, like um, boy bands. Okay. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, I have very strong opinions on these things. So. No, 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 that's that's good to know. I, I, I'm all about that. Um, I also just want to mention that to be practically naked at the end was really inspiring, considering what was being said and the journey we went on. Oh, to strip yeah. everything away, to go from over the top to basically bare. Mm-hmm. Well, and it really just drives home the point of gender as a performance and not as a um, as a biological thing. Because gender is a performance. Yes. Um, and just to see, I mean, to really see Neil Patrick Harris be as vulnerable as he was in this role because there were so many queer ideas and gender... Um, gender ideas being played with and experimented with and presented that he really had to be 100% in the moment and leave his own ideas of what gender performance was to give us the performance that he did. Yes. And I like to think that through costume, that was a tool to help him so that he could give us that kind of performance. Yes. Um, now, I want to come back, I want to circle back <clears throat> to the last thing about wigs with our milk cartons. See, I was the milk cartons made sense. This was a fascinating thing during the show, the iconic Hedwig wig, the one that was built with the toilet paper rolls and the synthetic blonde, mm-hmm. during a performance, was stolen. Do you remember this during the run? No. Uh, yeah, it got stolen because so, there was a quick change, you know, and like it's ripped off and it sits on the stage. Well, an audience member had swiped it. Oh, my God. Yeah, you don't remember this? No, Hedwig I don't. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, someone swiped the wig and like 
social media had a frenzy where they put the wig on milk cartons and that. Like, have you seen this wig? And I don't, I believe the, it was returned. I never heard about, like, what happened. But all I can think is, who in the hell, like, just swipes a wig off a Broadway stage? Oh, my God. Especially because a wig like that costs upwards of, like, thousands of dollars. Like, we're talking at least 6000 if not more. Yeah. Um, it, it, um, so yeah, so they would go on to, you know, say like Yitzhak didn't do it because they had an airtight alibi. They wouldn't touch the locks. Um, you know, they don't want to face Hedwig's ire. And then they would be like, to whoever stole it, don't wear it around the village this Halloween. Or, you know, Hedwig's going to snatch it off and kick your ass and stuff like that. And I was like, oh my gosh. So it's. Maybe it was a marketing scheme. I don't know. But as far as I know, it was real. And all I can think is, why? And the one thing I'll say about why I think it's not a marketing scheme, audience members do some dumb things. This is true. Someone tried to plug their phone in on the set of Hand to God. You know, like... It's fair. And someone did throw a sandwich on the stage for... Of one man, two governors. Yeah. So, I mean... It's not entirely far-fetched, but I'm just like, still a wig? Mm, it scares me. Oh, my gosh. So, um, okay. Let us keep on chugging, and let's go to the lights. You mean the Tony Award-winning lights? The Tony Award-winning lights. Who's up for an epic theater rock show? Yeah! You can't see what I'm doing, but yeah! Shout out the demo! Rock on! That's what the youngins are doing, right? No... Um, I love the way there were like three worlds in which they lit the stage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they had like from the audience, typical, and then there was like from the stage, so like, you know, the speakers, and then um, the car, and then um, the walls, but then there was like behind the stage as well, where Tommy Gnosis is supposed to be performing, and having those three different angles throughout the show creating three different segments that Hedwig can move in. Well, and three different planes. Well, there were... Yeah, you know, no, There were different planes that Hedwig existed in. No, I think you're right, because, like, normally, you know, you get those multiple angles of lighting mm-hmm. to help reduce shadows. Mm-hmm. But, like, in this, though, like, it was clear. Well, and so what the lighting... What I think was the most brilliant part of this lighting design is it allowed these three different planes to exist. Yes. So not only did we have, hey, this is Hedwig putting on a show, we were able to go into, hey, this is kind of a flashback. And then we had this non-linear like, space that existed. Like Hedwig's mind almost. Kind of, yeah. It just was this, there was a clear definition of what, what, plane of space we occupied and we were able to go on a seamless journey without leaving because of the lighting design and i think a lot of that had to do with you know here's reality here's the stark white reality of hedwig's not a nice person and then we have hedwig's illusion of what hedwig thinks she is and then we get this whole other 
plane when we get to that finale of it existing outside of a box and outside of the theater even and it becomes larger than life and it becomes this full ethereal thought Mm-hmm. And I really think that that was the brilliant of the lighting brilliance of the lighting design mm-hmm. is to create these separate worlds um, and how Hedwig just seamlessly moved in and out of them and we moved with them. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, also along with the lighting, the projections are really incredible, um, especially during the origin of love. Oh my gosh, I thought that was so yeah, cool. They were so pretty and beautiful and like I they were real in my mind. I thought that, to be, to me, the projections helped really cement the power of that song. In fact, we even had it play at our wedding. Mm-hmm. That's how, like, I, I, I was just so moved by that whole moment that I, I wanted, I mean, I, I'll speak for both of us. We wanted it to be a part of our big day. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, it also, like, helped assist in, in giving... Visual something visual while there were a co- while there was a costume change. Yeah, and more you didn't than, even notice. Yeah, more than just watching the band perform, you know. Um, well, and it was storytelling, like it was a storytelling element. Yes, and speaking of storytelling, let's go to the direction. Um, Michael Mayer has a style, and and like a signature, and you can see it all over the show. Um, it's like Rent meets Spring Awakening meets a glam rock concert. It's raw but inspiring, and it leaves you not only like excited but also wanting to enact change. I feel like that's a trademark of a Michael Myers show. Okay. Michael Mayer show, not Michael Myers. <laughs> we are not killing people with Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Mayer. Um, you know that Michael Mayer does. I love his. I love when he directs a show. He, he picks, he doesn't just direct any old show. His show's always got something behind it, which is why I really appreciate what he, what he gets on board with. Everything just clicked on the show, and it just allowed us to completely be submerged in it. That's what I love about a show. When everything is, when I mentioned that everything was firing on all cylinders, when it all is just working, there is no room for you to be like, my pleasant lights. Oh, look at those costumes. I love that set change. By the way, there really weren't set changes. I meant, I meant to mention that. Correct. But, you know, you just get sucked in and then you get done. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. So um, I'm trying to remember, you know, that kind of thing. I love the way that Hedwig and all the rest of the characters interacted with the audience. and made the show feel like nothing else that you had ever seen on Broadway. It really made it feel like a unique and intimate experience. Oh yeah, 100%. And the fact that like the band were, you know, the band, but they also were characters. Yeah, they they had interaction with Yitzhak and Hedwig and I, I don't know, I don't remember if they actually had lines, but they were just like, it was almost like a late night television show band, you know, they were just, mm-hmm. yeah, all right. And the fact, I, I love the improv segments by Hedwig. The actor had to know just how far to push and punch the audience. Not something that can't necessarily be taught, but has to kind of be guided. Well, and you can't really rehearse that either. No, because you never know what the audience is going to do, or how far they're going to push you as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know how much of it is scripted, but I certainly don't think 
a, I feel like it's like this is the part where you interact with the audience and this is these are like the guidelines you go off of but you know you have to gauge based on the reaction and for me in my recent memory this is one of the first shows where I was like are they actually talking to us are we supposed to engage back because typically we go to the theater and the lights go down we're just sitting there and there's the fourth wall and we just watch the actors typically don't reach out past the fourth wall and do prolonged interactions where this was, you know, no, we're going to have an actual back and forth. Mm-hmm. Well, and for the actor to be able to respond in their character, mm-hmm. especially a multi-level iconic character like Hedwig, is just a, a, it speaks to the brilliance of the character created as well as the ability of casting to pick who plays Hedwig. Yeah. It's not an easy role. It's not an easy thing. And so to see it done beautifully is just a... It's a treat. Because Hedwig is some a, a character that is a scoundrel, but we have to love them. You know? And they're not a nice person. They're mm-hmm. not. And the way they, they treat others and the way they even treat the audience. So it's like you have to be able to really chide the audience but to what point Mm -hmm. you still have to have the audience on your side you still have to want them to hang around and watch the show and be engaged and and in a sense root for you still and if you push them too far if you if you unseat them too much mm, we've lost them and now you're gonna have to work twice as hard to get them back and then the the whole show is lost so i thought that in the hands of michael meyer mayer michael meyer jesus michael mayer you know, and then of course Neil Patrick Harris. That was a great like. Here's as far as you probably should take it. This is what you should be looking for. You know, and and they were smart. They were really really smart. Right. Speaking of smart. Oh yes, you called. No, I'm just kidding. It's not me. It's the music. <coughs> Stephen Trust music. It is absolutely brilliant and unlike any sound I've heard from Broadway. It sounded like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, like they are a real band, and you could hear multiple albums come out. Yes, from them. it's memorable. <clears throat> you just hear you just hear the name Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and all the songs just boom pop in your head. But these songs are in such a way that like they're storytelling in such a fine way. Like it takes that. I mean, in in my experience, it takes that that picturesque storytelling that you get from a country song and puts it into punk rock. Right. And I mean, that, to me, that was amazing. One of the amazing things is that it wasn't just these great melodies that we remember. It's the story. But it was the lyrics, the sheer poetry of it. Mm-hmm. And, well, and the, the ability to be poetic and tell us a story. Yeah. See, to me, with, with this music, it was capturing... A time when rock and roll was a much higher art. I know that sounds like an old man thing, but like if you look back at rock and roll and even punk rock of the 70s and 80s, it was a complete theatrical show. There, even the music videos and, and, and the songs told a story. Mm-hmm. There was, it wasn't just like A, B, A, there wasn't B, a formula. C. Exactly. Like we were going to go on a story, we we're going to go on a journey. This was about a heartbreak, or this was about getting the guys together. 
And yeah, it was simple, but we actually want to... Every song told a story and they weren't just like a minute and a half long kind of thing, which is one thing I feel like a lot is lost on pop music today where I feel like, what are we talking about in this song? <laughs> like, yeah, I like, don't understand what we're what doing. What is the point of this song? Where you look back at some of these iconic songs and you're like, why do we like Don't Stop Believing? You know, why do we like Jesse's Girl? Why do we like... Uh, uh, oh, Still of the Night. You know, all these songs have a story to them. Um, and I feel like that was what this show was kind of doing with its music, where it was capturing that. We're going to do a song called uh, Sugar uh, Sugar Daddy. I think it's I think called that, Sugar Daddy. Yeah, and, and it's going to be a full-on... And of course, in true musical theater style, it's going to be a full-on story, but it was capturing that, like, we're going to have a four-minute epic rock song, you know, and it's even going to have that slow ballad part, you know. And then we're going to cut right back in and it's like, yeah, you know, that was so cool to me. That was so cool because I hadn't heard musical theater songs like that. With the, I mean, American Idiot got close. Right. But that one, because it was an album released by the band first, it, it just, it, it was, An original musical. Well, and the thing to know, I mean, between this and um, An American Idiot is the intent behind the punk. Hedwig, as a, as a punk style, is about the rage and duality and breaking down societal constructs that have to do with everyday living as it goes to self-identity mm-hmm. whereas the punk themes behind American Idiot was about rage at society about politics and so they hit in different places in your body mm-hmm. Hedwig hits in your core as a self-identification whereas American Idiot hits in your blood and in your heart and in your brain it just it it strikes a chord differently in your body, and there's a time and a place for each of them. But Hedwig being such a performative piece that's not there to, it's not there to inspire outrage to make change. It's more about showcasing the internal struggle of the outrage, and so it's just it's using similar art forms to just derive and drive those points home and i think you know it's it's hard it's hard to be that intimate especially with punk rock and so the fact that we have this intimate personal feeling coming from the music that's what makes it so special yeah and then also i'll add that you know we've mentioned a lot of these these when we say punk these hard songs like Tear Me Down and Sugar Daddy and all that. Beautiful rock ballads, though, like Midnight Radio mm-hmm. or uh, Wicked Box. Little Town. A Wicked Little Town is a good one. You know, these just beautiful, heart-wrenching. Well, because it comes from the soul. Yes, yes. The show has had several notable performers, including Rebecca Naomi Jones, Michael C. Hall, Andrew Rannells, Tay Diggs, John Cameron Mitchell, Darren Chris, Lena Hall, and Neil Patrick Harris. 
talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. So, starting with theatrical impact, I would say this is another huge success for Michael Mayers. Um, I would also say this is a fabulous LGBTQ plus show and a hugely successful one. As Harvey Firesing once said, you know, Le Cajaval, the first gay musical, hardly, but the first gay musical to make money. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's important in America to be successful and whatnot. So this is a very successful LGBTQ piece of theater. Well, and it solidified gender themes as a topic in musical theater in history. Yes. Um, and and not just, I mean, previously we had kinky boots where we were dealing with Blurred gender lines. I, I'll say like a man dressing up as a woman. But, no, because well, 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 before I mean that or Lakasha Fall, where we had men dressing up as women. But in this show, we were actually dealing with the idea of is Hedwig a man? Is Hedwig a woman? Is is Hedwig something in between? And it was like that's not necessarily the important part. Well, and with shows like Kinky Boots and Lakasha Fall, the idea was gender is a performance in a performance setting. Hedwig is gender as a performance in all facets of life. Right. And that performance can be a daily performance. And and so it's 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 different in that way. Yes. Um and it also brought up a lot of um I think just introspective internal thoughts on on you know queer culture and queer ideologies um because are we talking about gender as a performance for performance are we talking about gender as a performance in everyday life are we talking about transgender ideologies are we talking about you know things things that people are forced to do to for, for survival Things that, you know, performance, gender performance as a means of survival, you know, and it, it kind of just, it goes into such a vulnerable, deeply personal space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is a huge impact. We hadn't really done that on the stage in a musical. We've explored it in plays. But not in a musical but yet. But not in a musical No, yet. I agree. Um, <clears throat> I'd also say it's a successful glam rock. A glam rock show and a cult classic show. Mm-hmm. You don't have a lot of cult classic musicals. You know, we have the Rocky Horror Show. Um, I'm trying to think of other cult classics. I would now put Beetlejuice as a cult classic. I would put Beetlejuice in that. Because people cosplay it. I mean, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, I would say, is a cult classic, yeah. But I mean, you know, you get outside of that. What What other show? Rent? Rent's got rent heads. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, uh, it's hard to, to find musicals that have that kind of following, especially globally. So this is a great, great cult classic show. And then finally, I would say this show redefined what stories were possible or allowed to be told on the Broadway stage, especially as a commercial success. You know, something an audience would, would want to see. And I'm mainly just referring to the 2014 production because... If you go off of Broadway, go to the world of off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, there are 
any story you could want to see exists in that world. That's the beauty of it, okay? Everyone's story is being told just outside of those 41 theaters, okay? To get into one of those 41 theaters, though, producers are going to kind of want a sure thing. They want something that, you know, over a thousand people a night are going to want to come see. They're going to want a story and a show that's accessible to a wide market, not just a small market. You know, most recently, I would say one of the bigger successes in the musical world has been A Strange Loop, mm-hmm. which is not a, a, a show that can be widely marketed to the entire country. You know, I'm sure they're not ri- running ads for A Strange Loop, you know, in the Midwest on every local television station, you know. And that's fine. It's, it is not a show for everyone versus like A Lion King. But that being said, this show was like, hey, I think audiences are ready for this show. They're ready for these conversations. They're ready for this subject matter. They're ready to to start to, you know, we we can't keep this buried in the desk anymore. This is not just for off-Broadway anymore. This is not going to just be seen as, you know... That that kind of theater you go off Broadway to see in that small little theater in the basement of a hotel. No, this is this is clearly something that people want to see, and it's going to and 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 this is going to be something that is worth investing in and promoting and bringing to a larger audience. And of course, it it is. It's successful around the world. It's successful on national tours, and and it was successful on Broadway. Right. Well, and also I think something that's interesting as a as a theatrical impact is why Hedwig in 2014 was considered a revival. Because um I mean, obviously you know, when it was first being performed off Broadway, it was 1998. So I would like to think that you know, we weren't so stuck in our ways that we, you know, didn't, like, accept the show. Um, so, I mean, it's just it's just interesting to, um, I don't know. Well, again, you have, when they're picking, I mean, I hate to say it, Broadway is a commercial industry. They're not going to put, I, they are starting to put more shows up, I'll say, like, art for art's sake, mm-hmm. or more controversial shows. They're taking more of a chance on shows that maybe they wouldn't five, ten years ago. But they're going to pick a show. If they've got, you know, two theaters and five shows that want that two theaters, they're going to pick the show that would appeal to the widest audience. You know, versus maybe the show that might be the most important show. But our community has started to call that out recently, and so that has started to change. The purpose of our, our industry is to tell stories and also to bring awareness. Mm -hmm. We're to entertain and to bring awareness. And if we can do both, all the better. It's not not just about making money, you know? So we're starting to see more balance on Broadway of that, where we do have these cash cow shows come in, but then we also have some of these shows that it's like, yeah, it's important for the, like right now we have a show like Anne Juliet playing that is widely entertaining, but there's a great message behind it. Mm-hmm. But then you've also got the Ohio State Murders that are playing. Now it's not, I mean, it's not selling fantastically, starring Audra McDonald, which is shocking, but it's an incredibly powerful and important story to be told. 
So it's like, how can these two exist at the same time? Because our community and our world demands that we have a balance. Well, and I also think that it just kind of goes to show this unspoken um, way that we we pay homage to the history behind the show. Because oftentimes with these shows, they're, they've been in the pipeline for a long time. Exactly. Sometimes. And so you're right. I mean, like if we were to call Hedwig a new musical just because it was new on Broadway, that would have been a slap in the face to the history and the cult following that we already had with Hedwig. Well, and it's the idea... I, I, I would like us to do a little bit more research as to why it's a revival and well, it, and that's what I, I have been having a hard time finding documentation. Because, for instance, so they did the, I think it's because it's not a a, 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 a straight track on the Broadway. Because you've got shows that come from off-Broadway on the Broadway, like Kimberly Akimbo produced the fall into the winter and then went straight to Broadway, right? Or mm-hmm. Dear Evan Hansen, or a Hamilton, or a Fun Home, or a Be More Chill. All off-Broadway, then they go to Broadway. None of those were... A revival though they're a new musical but then you got shows like violet or hedwig which never played broadway yet but yet they're revivals and mm-hmm. i think it's because they had a full production previously off broadway and i wonder if it has something to do with equity if it was an equity production off broadway hmm not sure it just it just would be interesting because i also think that it i don't know it just it's it does have an impact on the theater because what is a revival mean at that point and what is a new thing? And then is it just a money game for a definition in, in awards? I, I don't think it's a money game. I, I definitely don't think it's a money game because the producers don't get to set if it's a revival or if it's a new. That is entirely the American Theater Wing and the Broadway League. Right, but they also are doing it for money too. So I just think it's interesting. Right, but I, I don't think that that's... That I don't think a revival versus new plays into that. Okay. Um, if anybody out there has that answer, I'd be intrigued. But I think it has to do with the trajectory. Did it play off-Broadway, let's say in the fall or the spring, and now it makes a straight Broadway transfer? Or was it like it played four years ago and now it's being done? You know, mm-hmm. that Or might... in, the, in, the, in the case of Trouble in Mind, it never got its due service as being called a new play. Because it was written many, many years ago and it was done inteenth times off-Broadway but never on-Broadway. So that mm-hmm. would be a revival. Well, and I just think it's interesting how shows like these are helping to start a conversation about who and what can be at the table. So, oh, exactly. That and that's exactly the, the impact. point. We, we, we as a community, and I mean, we're... We, we got to bring it back around. But we as a community, we as a society, we as a theater are starting to go, we have to stop looking at the bottom line. Like, yes, we have to all get paid. Yes, we have to keep the lights on. But we also have to make sure represent, representation matters. Messaging well, and what matters. Is, what is our duty as artists. as artists to pay homage to communities and help build communities up exactly. as well as making money. It's not just about diversifying the stage as in the performance, but in the stories being told, who's telling them, whose story are we telling? Well, and what what do we what do we owe ethically versus financially? Yes, and, and, and diversifying, when I hear diversifying the theater, remember, it's not just about diversifying what we see on stage. It's diversifying every aspect of the theater, backstage, producing, 
audience. And the only way you're going to get all of that done is by changing what you're actually doing. And to me, bringing it back around, Hedwig was a, definitely helped in that by going, hey, we can do a show about gender queerness and or gender fluidity or, or, or just gender, gender in, in general. And audiences are going to respond, and you're also going to attract new audience people. And too. it can be lucrative. And, it, and this leads us into societal impact. This had a huge LGBTQ impact. It brought awareness to gender fluid and gender queer and transgender individuals and the struggles that they have faced and that they continue to face. Like I, uh, like for me, like I said, I didn't know anything going into the show about the show, and. I knew the term like transgender, for instance, but I was very ignorant and very naive. You cleared a lot of that up. Because Hedwig is not transgender. Right. And we had a really long discussion after the show, and I learned so much. I actually left the show with more questions and answers in the best way, and I wanted to know more. I was like, hang on a second. I don't understand this, this, and this, but I feel like I need to understand this. I don't feel like that's the show's job to tell me what this is. I feel like it's my job mm-hmm. to know this. Why do you have to explain to me basically yourself? You don't owe me an explanation. I should owe you some damn well decency to actually be aware of who well, you are. And ask people who experience these kind of ideas and these kind of feelings, ask is. them what their experience exactly. is and, and learn from individuals. Also understanding that they don't owe you an explanation either, but it is your job as a member of society to understand people who live differently than you. And this was this show started opening my eyes that genderqueer and gender fluid and transgender individuals, like I don't like I said, I feel so ignorant, but I walked out of the theater and I went, Oh my gosh, these people are all around. That's so cool. You know? And I was like... I, 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 I felt very ashamed and ignorant that I had gone that far in my life and not... And, and you know, I consider myself an ally of the LGBTQ community, but I'd gone that long in my life and not understood that aspect of the community. And I was like, man, I got to do better. And this show made me want to do better. And I wanted to get answers. We had a long discussion. I've continued to learn. And so I thought that this show was really effective in doing that. It may not have been the sole purpose of the show, but hey, if it did that for me, I wonder how many other people it did it for. Mm -hmm. Or in how many young kids took their parents to see this show and their parents helped gain an understanding into their child. Yeah. Or helped awaken things within someone sitting in the audience who goes, oh, I can do that. Right. It it is acceptable. I can do that. And because the show was mainstream, maybe it helped someone be like, okay, if Neil Patrick Harris can be someone like this and everyone gets behind it, maybe I can be my true self. Mm -hmm. And with that, because of the star power of the show, it brought a whole other dynamic of audience to the theater. Now, I will Mm -hmm. say this was... This was a double-edged sword. A lot of people came out for a lot of the star power, not necessarily for the show itself, but for what the other, like what that other person did. So like when Neil Patrick was Harris, Neil Patrick Harris was there. A lot of people were there because he was in How, how You I met, met Your Mother. How I Met My Mother. How, how, you, met, how I Met Your Mother. That's the one. <laughs> you know, but I was like, great. So you know him from that show, but now you've come see this. Perhaps 
you actually were like, wow, this show was amazing. Or when Darren Chris was in. And they and... all were here for Glee. Mm-hmm. Or Tay Diggs. Or Andrew Reynolds. You know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, guys, they play a character on TV, and that's great. Go stalk them at the TV studio. But they're a different person here at the theater. And I love that 99% of the actors who perform on Broadway will not sign anything except what's from that show. I really respect that because I'm like, we are here to support you in this project. Not that. Mm-hmm. That is that is one facet of your life. Jim Parsons, you know, or or I can't think of Harry Potter's name right now. Um, help me out with it. Daniel Radcliffe. Or... Um, Even Hugh Jackman. Hugh, yeah. They're actors. They play multiple roles. So I love that this show had all the star power, but it attracted these audience members, and hopefully they went, oh my gosh, so this is what the theater's liked? I gotta go. And also because of the show's cult following, <laughs> it did bring another dynamic to the theater as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love going to shows where they have that massive following, which is why I throw Beetlejuice into the, the cult following, because the, the several times this year we've gone to Beetlejuice, seeing all, and especially it's a lot of young people, seeing them get all dressed up for the theater, for Beetlejuice, cosplaying it, right? Mm-hmm. I am over the moon, because like you and I, when we go, we usually coordinate our outfits, mm-hmm. you know? To like fit the theme of the show. Yeah, the color scheme of the show typically, or something of that nature, you know. That's kind of our little, like, tongue-in-cheek, like, ooh-la-la, right? Mm-hmm. But to see people, like, full-on dressing up in Beetlejuice's striped suit, or Lydia's black dress, or what have you, I'm like, you guys are really getting into this. Now, look, I'm not a fan of, like, the shorts and t-shirt thing. Like, no, please don't do that. It's the Broadway theater. At least put on pants. Please. But the fact that these people are cosplaying shows, I'm like, okay, you know what? That's all right. So this cult following coming to Hedwig, I was like, absolutely. Let's let's all dress up in the Hedwig wig and let's all go to the show together. Because that shows passion and that gets you excited and that's what theater should do. Mm-hmm. Theater should excite you and make you want to do more. Not just sit down and be like, yay, it's the theater. <clears throat> this is not 1890 stuffy England. Right. Well, and I will say that I think Hedwig as a concept is always relevant for a space like Broadway, but I think with where we're at politically in America, Hedwig is not the most ideal for a Broadway stage because we need to raise up the voices of transgender people to get this kind of response from. And since Hedwig is not transgender and is not specifically addressing transgender feelings, I think that we need to... I don't think that it's the best time for Hedwig on a Broadway stage, but Hedwig in communities, Hedwig in regional theaters, Hedwig in um, in collegiate spaces, yes, always. So you've already but, gone and jumped ahead to, is the show relevant? Uh, Yeah. Because I think that at this point, that is what we're talking about, is the show's relevancy. I, I, I was still at the silent back, my bad. But, okay. Yeah, so I just, I mean, I think that Hedwig always has a space on Broadway, but I don't think that it's ideal right now, purely because as a 
platform that Broadway is, the space is needed to raise the voices of the transgender experience in life. And and since Hedwig is not a representation of that. Well, I, I would agree. Um, I hope we get a transgender musical of some sort tomorrow, you know. Um, but for me, I say the show is relevant. I absolutely, especially with all the hardships facing the community, the LGBTQ community. And I do say particularly the transgender community. I know Hedwig's not transgender. I understand that. But I think through the show, we can draw attention to the transgender community using Hedwig as a vessel. Why can't they put educational material in the playbill to help explain what transgender is versus gender fluid versus gender queer versus, you know, Hedwig is a part of the gender discussion. Mm-hmm. So why can't that be part of it? Why can't you use that vessel to help further it? It's like in Anne Juliet, there is a uh, non-binary. non-binary character, right? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that part of the gender discussion too? Mm-hmm. So for me, as long as you... If we're going to continue this discussion about gender and queerness and everything and look i i might not be the best spokesperson because i'm cis you're cisgender cisgender. but if we have characters that are not cisgender but we we can explain who they are how they identify and and also explain the other genders i feel like that's helping continue the conversation and educate the general public so they're more aware of it if we want to draw attention to the transgender, you know, the, the plight that is facing the transgender community, that's fine. But to me, I don't know that the stage is necessarily the best place to, to point out that transgender individuals are not only being oppressed and having laws put against them, but are also being killed and whatnot. That's something that maybe we need to face as society, period, the end. Out, not just on stage, but in general. Mm-hmm. But back to is the show relevant? I do think that this is this is the perfect show to help um, help with showcasing the hardships facing not only the transgender community but the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. It is the perfect time to refocus attention on the struggle and the triumphs that these communities have faced and continue to overcome and face. You know, at the end of the day. Hedwig does go through an incredible journey, hardships, and does, I mean, does triumph in the end, does come come to peace, come to terms, discovers who they are. And that is a beautiful story. And to put the commercial spin on it, because, you know, we do have talk commercially, with its huge following, it would be a great way to put a shot of energy and audience numbers into Broadway's arms without bringing another, you know, film, you know, turn musical onto the Broadway stage. My opinion.
finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So we had the good fortune of seeing the show three times in 2014, 15, and 16. Um, yeah, three whole times. Um, so first off, let's just already start with what I feel like listeners, I, I think, already know, which is we love the show. Yeah. Love the show. This is one of my top favorite shows. Yeah. Um, I left the show a completely different person. And like I've said, left it with a lot of questions I wanted to have answered in order to understand a community that I was aware of but I didn't know as much about. And I felt like this show just inspired me to go and seek more information. And that's good theater. Mm-hmm. I didn't demand answers from the show. I demanded answers of myself. To be like, you need to go and learn and do better. I mean, the after the first time I saw the show, I was transformed. Um... It was really one of those experiences that lives in my mind that I replay from time to time mm-hmm. um, just because of the overwhelming feelings that I experienced during the performance. Yeah. Now, going to 2016, we saw the show in Salt Lake City at the Echo Theater. This was the second show to play at the Echo Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an absolute blast. You, me, your mom... Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually got moved from the top tier down to the second tier. And unfortunately, it didn't sell as well in Salt Lake. I can't imagine why. Um, but it but, sold better than I was expecting it to. Yes. Um, and it was so much fun. We had so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cast just gave everything. It was a blast. Um, and we, yeah, we did. That show, I still remember we were on the stage right side of the second tier and just... I was loving it. The sound was... I remember the first show we saw, which was beautiful, the sound just wasn't quite there. And then seeing Hedwig, I was like, yeah, the sound is kicking in. Like, yes, they figured it out. Um, Going back now to Broadway, um, I remember 2014. We saw it with Neil Patrick Harris and Lena Hall, and we actually got to meet them after the show. We got the autographs. Um, Both are very nice. Now, we had met Lena Hall previously... In Kiki Boots. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first time we'd seen Neil Patrick Harris and, and met him. He's very nice, but of course he was like, I'm doing this quickly because I need to get home to my kids. Well, and he was exhausted after that performance. Oh, it, he yeah. gave us everything. And then some. And I was like, the fact that you're signing is like, bless you. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is. He's such a nice person. And go him. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Go, in 2015, when we saw it, we saw it with Darren Chris. Now, a little background. So I used to work for the University of Utah for the athletic department. Now, I know that we're a theater podcast, so sports, sports ball. The University of Utah football team has beaten the University of Michigan all three times that they have met uh, in the last 20 years. I'm a graduate of the University of Utah. Darren Chris is a graduate of the University of Michigan. That being said, because we've beaten the University of Michigan, I've met respect. And I, sorry, Ohio fans, I cheer for them against Ohio State. Just putting it out there. You know, when you beat a team, you respect the team. So as he came by and he's signing, I was like, you're a Michigan alum. He's like, yes. I said, well, go Big Blue. Um, and he's like, that's right. And I said, except for this August when we play you. And, he's, and he stopped literally as he was signing. He's like, excuse me. And I said, I work for the University of Utah and we're coming to the big house. 
to play you. And we had like a five minute exchange about football right there as he's signing. And I thought, where have you been, my guy? Like, <laughs> you know, two guys who work in the theater. Yeah, I mean, yes, we can work in the theater and like sports. Like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. I just thought, are we really having a conversation about football? Michigan football, Utah football, this is amazing, you know. And then, of course, he's like, okay, I, I got to keep going. I was like, no, it's all good. So, Darren, Chris, if you listen, go Utes. But go Big Blue in the national championship. Uh, that's gonna, That's exciting. <laughs> So you're a nerd. Hey, it was fun. You'll be able to catch Hedwig and the Angry Inch at a theater near you soon. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stage whisper pod. So until next time. I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Yellow Cop, The Zombie Dandies, Man Bites Dog, Lorenzo's Music, and Billy Murray. Uh...